Yemen is the forgotten war. I just want you to listen to this clip, uh, video clip one. Go ahead and roll that, Hesher, uh, from, from Yemen. Listen to this. Strikes is under scrutiny. Nowhere feels safe here. This used to be the market in Mustaba, near the Saudi border. 119 people were killed here, 24 of them children, by one of those airstrikes. Matanya Basha lost her husband and two sons in the bombing. We don't have weapons, she tells me, but they kill our men and our children. They destroyed everything. The Saudis say they were targeting fighters and are investigating. Abdullah Mohammed was buying vegetables from the market when the missile struck. Two of his friends were killed, along with his uncle. My back is in pain, my chest and arms as well. Most of my face was burned. I still have shrapnel in my back. The horror of that day is scarred across Hassan Marbesh's face. His five-year-old son Yahir was killed. We are civilians, not soldiers. We are not armed. They blew us up out of nowhere. What's the reason? As we travel along the road, the aftermath of other airstrikes can be seen at every turn. Well, you can hear the jets from the Saudi-led coalition in the skies above me. We're just 20 miles from the Saudi border, and beyond this point is now effectively a no-go zone. Those forced to flee the border area now face a new fight, survival. More than two and a half million people have fled their homes across Yemen, many living in camps like this. I have no food to feed my son, Om Abdullah says. He's been sick for a month and it's getting worse. Musa cradles his baby brother, Mujahid, who's suffering severe malnutrition. He's not alone here. We are not only scared of the airstrikes, we're also scared of being hungry. Life here is so difficult. The Saudi-led military campaign is named Operation Restore Hope. All we found here was despair. Neil Connery, News at 10, Northern Yemen. Okay, okay, that was, I, I want to thank ITV for that report. And, uh, you know, the, the Western media is very slow to reacting to the Yemen story. It's taken them almost, many of them, almost 12 months to admit uh, that there is uh, something very wrong going on in Yemen. And uh, so we still thank ITV for a great report and for other media outlets that have made the effort uh, to get there and to do some good reporting and uh, stay away from the normal talking points, uh, which tend to govern mainstream media reporting uh, that like to dovetail with what Washington wants them to say. So thank you, ITV, for that great report. Now, that is The Forgotten War. You can watch that report up on 21stCenturyWire.com. Uh, and I might add to that ITV report, this is just came out. Uh, Vanessa shared this with us uh, at 21st Century Wire from another author at Global Research. Um, in the last 11 months, 
the arms sales from the United States and the UK. $33 billion. The sales coincide with 12 months of bombing by Saudi Arabia of Yemen. So the GCC has spent $33 billion in arms in the last 11 months. I, I think there's more than a coincidence there. Let me tell you, war is a great business. It's In fact, it's a racket. There's the figures there at 21st Century Wire. You can go ahead and check those. Those are all verified. Uh, go ahead and look at that. So consider that when you're voting on this week's shout poll. We're not trying to sway your vote, but the facts are the facts. Um, the use of cluster bombs has also been brought up at the United Nations. Uh, those are illegal under multiple international agreements. Even if the United States or Saudi Arabia or whoever doesn't sign those agreements, uh, they are still uh, illegal. And by U.S. law as well, we've gone through that on previous shows. This is the one-year anniversary of the war on Yemen. We're not going to say the war in Yemen. We're going to say the war on Yemen because it has been a war really against the people of Yemen, which has been waged by outside forces, uh, namely the, uh, the GCC and the United States. So Vanessa Beely is joining us from uh, France, and uh, Vanessa has spent uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, a lot of time in Geneva, and we're going to talk to her about what she was doing there and uh, about what, what happened as a result. And I think there's been some positive. We throw a lot of stuff out there. We, we, we pound, we hammer, we're chiseling at a giant mammoth block of stone and don't always feel like we get results, but in this case... Um, I'm happy to say that I think we've got a little bit of little bit of daylight, Vanessa. Um, I don't know if you agree with me on that, Vanessa, but I, I'm very encouraged to see at least some official admission that there have been what one might call war crimes uh, going on in Yemen, specifically with regards to, at least as a start, the cluster bombs that have been used uh, apparently by Saudi Arabia against uh, the people of Yemen. Tell us about your trip to Geneva. Yeah, I mean, the trip to um, the UNHRC, um, Human Rights Commission, for its 31st session was a fascinating experience. It's probably the best way to describe it. Um, a slightly a roller coaster and, and a, a little bit odd for probably you and I usually on the sidelines commentating um, to be, if you like, in the belly of the beast. Um, and to be surrounded by those that we talk about and discuss and, and to some extent um, criticize for their inaction or their actions in the, wrong, in the wrong direction. So from that perspective, it was certainly an enlightening and, and a strengthening um, experience is how I would describe it. Um, fundamentally, I was there um, with two, uh, or shall we say three NGOs, uh, one was um, Arabian Rights Watch Association, Arwa.org. Um, the other was the uh, Sheba Coalition and Hayam, um, who, who defend um, prisoners um, and who, who uh, prisoners in, in, in jail in Palestine, in Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain, etc. Um, so I was working with them um, to present the case against the Saudi coalition for grave violations of human rights and war crimes. And obviously under the war crime um, section came the, the illegal use of cluster munitions um, in civilian areas. 
Um, now, the cluster munitions are primarily being supplied by the United States, who, as we know, is not a signatory, neither is Saudi Arabia and neither is Yemen or Israel or Russia or China, of the cluster munitions convention. However, the United States does have very, very unequivocal export laws and regulations that state that these hideous weapons, cluster munitions, must meet um, what they term as a less than 1% failure rate, which is a kind of rather disgusting term. I mean, I mean, you know, when, when, when you read this, it's along that it's up there with collateral damage. Explain quickly what, what they mean by that. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically yeah. what this means is a cluster munitions, um, for anybody that doesn't know what it is, 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 a, is a large um, hollow tube um, which can weigh thousands of pounds up to one, you know, up to thousands of, of um, kilos which is packed with up to 2,000 smaller munitions that are released in various different ways. Some are released mid-air. The, the outer casing explodes and releases these um, skeets or bomblets. And they either come to earth on small parachutes or, or they're released in various ways. But their description of a failure rate is basically less than 1% of those bomblets, bear in mind, there are up to 2,000 of them, um, will not explode on impact. So in other words, they'll be left on the ground, unexploded, undetonated. So in other words, they then become de facto landmines that are a danger to livestock, to children, predominantly to children who perceive them. If you actually see one of these bomblets, they usually, they can often be bright yellow, they're spherical, they look like toys, and kids sort of playing around in as they do in the rubble or on the on the agricultural land that's been bombed will come across. And we have stories of these kids coming across these. Some kids sort of hitting them with rocks, thinking, "Well, what is it?" And then, of course, it explodes, and it will disfigure, maim, mutilate. I mean, it will rip limbs off. Let, let, so let me just add these, quickly. Let me add quickly. You know, the 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 casing of those bomblets are scored. They score the metal in such a way that they will uh, create a, at least 300 pieces of shrapnel. And the shrapnel is yeah. so sharp, even if you touch it, you'll, yeah. you'll cut your hand. So basically they're designed, even though the, the, final, the final explosion after all the little bomblets and the time releases, mm-hmm. the last one is designed and it has a radius a deadly radius of you could be up to 50 yards away from that and you can yeah. still get maimed or possibly killed. I mean, these yeah. things are absolutely vicious. Well, I mean, they're supposed to pierce armor plating. You know, they, they, <laughs> hence the reason that they are categorically the, the other regulation that the U.S. states as part of their export policy is that they should never be used on civilian targets. They are, they are intended... Um, for for military targets, which would mean which would involve um, tanks, armored vehicles, um, supply vehicles, but but fundamentally um, non-animate objects that are going to be completely destroyed and torn apart by by this munition. And as you say, I mean, just the explosion of the of the outer shell of the bomb itself is going to shower 
molten metal and shrapnel across vast areas up to, I believe, one of the Textron um, technical analysis says over 30 acres. Wow. So, you know, if, if you imagine this munition being used in densely populated areas, which we know it has been, um, working with NGOs, which do, in the case of Yemen, include um, Human Rights Watch, but various um, on-the-ground um, neutral NGOs in Yemen itself, we've so far recorded a minimum of, of 56 usage usages of these cluster munitions, both from the air and from the ground, but by the way. But they're, deni- uh, they're, denying you know, they, they're denying they use them, right? Well, this is an interesting dichotomy, again, because, in fact, Asiri, the Brigadier General Asiri, who's the head of the coalition forces and their spokesperson, he has admitted to using cluster munitions, but the Saudi UN representative denied it categorically when we were in Geneva. So so there's, you know, there's this sort of, um, they're diametrically opposing themselves with their statements. Um, and... You know, what we came across in the UN were, um, if you like, the, the Saudi Hadi loyalists who were also represented um, in the UN were, were arguing very strongly for the fact that they were not being used um, and that the majority of civilian casualties, and we're talking now well over 8,000 deaths, of which probably one-third is children, which is a horrendous statistic, um, and over 50, well over 15,000. I mean, numbers go anywhere between 15,000 and 30,000 wounded. Um, so, and, and some, you know, with, with amputated limbs. Um, I mean, I watched a video this evening that was just heartbreaking, um, showing the results of, in fact, it was the one that you you um, contributed to, um, showing the actual effects of the use of these cluster munitions. Um, and the majority are amputees that are going to live with this disfigurement and this mutilation and this maiming for the rest of their lives. We know that uh, of these 56 usages that have been um, recorded, 34, I think, of those um, were in Sada, which is one of the Ansarullah strongholds in the north of the country, which has been completely obliterated. I mean, people I talked to, I was talking to somebody at the UN who had family in Sada, and he said that he hadn't been able to hear from them um, for probably over a month. Why? Because at the beginning of the conflict, the Sauds obliterated all of their tele- telecommunications their electricity, their ability to get water. Um, it, it, it basically, the, again, um, Brigadier General Asiri declared all of Sada a military target. Now, this violates every single international law by not differentiating between civilian and military targets. He declared the entire area um, a military target. So anyone, I was told that basically anybody that moves, if any light is seen moving in Sada, it's bombed. Um, speaking to a humanitarian agency, Mona Relief, who are on the ground in Yemen, um, he told me that they've tried time and time again to get into Sada with basic medical supplies. He said fundamentally the people there are living in caves and valleys. I mean, children are just being sheltered where they can find it in holes in the ground. 
And um, one heartbreaking photo that I saw when I was in Geneva was of two young children who, I, I don't know what they had been hit by. And I have to say here that some cluster munitions can contain chemicals. In other words, they can contain napalm or um, white phosphorus. And honestly, Pat, if you saw these kids, they looked like they'd been napalmed. I mean, their skin was just falling away from their body. Um, and I was told that their entire family had been massacred. These two kids were the only survivors, and they died two, two weeks after that photograph was taken. They had nothing. They had no water. They had no shelter. They had no means of, of feeding themselves. And, and here in Lebanon, well, just uh, interrupt you real quick. Sure. Here in Lebanon, yeah. in, in 2006, uh, when just at the end, the, one of the last things the Israeli uh, IDF did was they dropped, mm-hmm. after, after a ceasefire had been declared, they then dropped a load of cluster bombs on the south, um, you know, in this mm-hmm. sort of south region uh, of, of Lebanon, almost in spite, mm-hmm. um, and just, you know, pretty much made all these areas dangerous to even go into because there were so many cluster munitions uh, dropped on there at the last minute. So, you know, there, there is nothing... Uh, legitimate about these types of weapons, even in warfare. It's it's literally just uh, punishment, basically, against civilians. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the fact that they've targeted, I mean, as I said, the, the worst hit areas have been Sada and Hadja, and Hadja, of course, was the scene of that appalling marketplace bombing um, a few, you know, just over a week ago where over 120 civilians were massacred, entire families, children, women. And, you know, we've all seen the horrifying photographs um, of, of those casualties and the injured. Um, and if, if we consider that, then we have to consider that this is a form of ethnic cleansing. You know, Sada, I've been told it's just been, it's just been bombed into oblivion. It doesn't exist anymore. And if you look at the, the heritage Within Yemen, Sada, the ancient city of Sada, is is an incredibly um, important heritage site. Apart from the, the appalling civilian casualties and loss of life there, um, you know, it's it's almost as if the the Saudi coalition is just not only it it's, it seems almost not strong enough to say this is a genocidal war of aggression. It's a it's it's wiping out an entire civilization. And actually, as um, uh, Abdul Malik Al Houthi said in his speech um, on the eve of the first year anniversary, he said, "Not only is this a genocide, but it's wiping out an entire generation of Yemenis." Yeah. Um, Let me, and, let's just put put this into perspective for for people who aren't familiar with what's been happening mm-hmm. in Yemen. So we're reaching the mm-hmm. one year anniversary. Uh, Saudi Arabia yeah. and its allies, with backed by the United States, basically declared war on Yemen uh, because they felt that their the leader, which they they liked and had installed, uh, had been. Uh, Forced for, not forced from office. His time was up, and he overstayed his time in office. He resigned. Yeah, he resigned. But he was still hanging <laughs> out, and uh, and so their man was basically uh, shown the door, and they said, "Okay, well, we're going to declare war on you now because that was our guy." Basically, so we have the Kate Gilmore, UN uh, Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights, who mistake if I'm not mistaken has had referred to some things that you had presented in Geneva, right? 
so uh, she'd at least yeah. acknowledged your report, didn't she? Yeah, she certainly acknowledged um, the various reports on the use of cluster munitions, which she described as, you know, being an appalling violation of human rights. Um, but just very quickly, if I can, um, go back to the actual history of the conflict a little bit, because I know that a lot of people sort of, you know, they, they, they hear what is being um, cited in the media, that it's a sectarian war, that it's Sunni versus Shia, etc., um, that it's uh, Iran versus Saudi Arabia. Correct. Um, and two things that I would like to, to sort of counteract there. One, um, my understanding of Yemeni society is that it, traditionally it has never been a sectarian society. Zaidi, which are the, um, the, the uh, Yemeni Shias, live side by side with the Shafi, which are the Yemeni Sunnis. Um, the Zaidis, the Shias, have a very different belief to, to that of Iran. Um, they believe in the five caliphs. <laughs> Iran believes in the 12 caliphs. Um, so you've got the fivers versus the twelvers. So most um, Shia factions within Yemen will tell me, look, we are not even religiously close to Iran in our beliefs. So, so this conflation of our existence with that of Iran is, is incredibly erroneous. Plus, the the Sunni factions and the Shia factions have lived side by side. They've, they've gone to the same majids, the same mosques. They've intermarried between sects. So, you know, this, this, this needs to be put to bed because it's, again, part of this sectarian propaganda that has been propagated by the Western media and that is affecting, oh, as we know, um, Syria, Iraq, and now Yemen. Um, but... If I can very quickly just refer to the statement made by a young Yemeni um, lawyer based in Washington, D.C., Mohammed al-Wazir, who made it as part of our um, presentation to the U.N., which, where basically he broke down the history of the conflict very clearly. Um, and what he said was, obviously, um, we know about the Arab Spring in Yemen, the fact that the 2011 revolution, although it had very firm foundations in genuine dissatisfaction with uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh. It was hijacked, as we know, by the West, as most of them have been. Um, and when Saleh was forced to go, um, he signed off on the GCC initiative. And out of that, he, he also received um, immunity from prosecution for his various crimes during his reign of power. Um, then Hardy was made was made president. He was made signed in on the first of February two thousand and twelve, and his presidency was extended for a year on the twenty first of January two thousand and fourteen. Now this is where it has to be be made very very clear. On the twenty second of January two thousand and fifteen, Hardy stepped down. He resigned. And even though political parties and factions were calling for him to come back, he, he refused. He then left Sana for Aden, where he claimed he was still the president despite having resigned, um, and his extended GCC mandate had expired. He then attempted to move the government to Aden, but once he realized that the Yemeni army was not going to allow this to happen and had, if you like, united um, with the people and the Houthi factions... Um, he, he ended up, he fled Yemen as a fugitive to Riyadh, 
where he was then recorded calling upon Saudi Arabia um, to launch a war on Yemen that would reinstall him as president of Yemen. So, you know, this is an incredibly corrupt and, and cowardly um, action from a man who, who, who calls himself the legitimate president of Yemen. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then, obviously, we know then that um, based on national dialogue outcomes and the peace and national partnership agreement that included all Yemeni parties and factions, the Yemeni people were on their way to a political solution during the negotiations that were taking place post-Hardy's um, deposal, if you like. Um, and this was, this was testified to by Jamal Benamar, who was the UN Special Envoy, who stated very clearly, when this campaign, meaning the, the illegal war of aggression by the Saudi coalition on Yemen, one thing that was significant that went unnoticed is that the Yemenis were close to a deal that would institute power sharing with all sides, including the Houthis. So fundamentally, what this war of aggression is doing is... is tearing out any self-determination of the Yemeni people to decide their own political, economic, and military future. Um, and and this, is, this is a familiar pattern. Yes. As soon as the nation or a state... Yeah, you know, precisely. This is, this is what we're seeing globally. As soon as a state decides to, to become self-determinant and to reject all form of proxy... Colonialism, which is basically fundamentally what, what Saudi Arabia was doing to Yemen, is through various puppet governments, Hadi being the last one, it was um, imposing its own form of corruption and oppression from, from a distance, if you like. Um, and it didn't want to see this power, this hegemony being disrupted. And that is very, that, that's what Yemen was so close to doing. And so when people describe this as um, an insurgence led by the Houthis, let's also remember that the Houthis are less than 1% of the population of Yemen. This is an incredibly important fact that nobody ever seems to refer to. They are a tiny percentage. Ansarullah does not only represent the Houthi um, demand for representation, which is a very valid demand for representation within their own country, within their nation. But it represents now the leadership of the majority of the Yemeni people against Saudi oppression and protesting for the right to determine their own future and to determine their own um, trade uh, lines as well. I mean, prior to this, the bilateral trade between Iran and Yemen was flourishing, but that's you know that's 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 an acceptable part of of um, a country's economy. It's certainly not something that warrants bombing it into oblivion for three hundred and sixty-five <coughs> well, days. Well, sh it shouldn't warrant it, uh, Vanessa. <laughs> but in in the eyes of uh, Saudi Arabia, it does warrant bombing because they do not want to have their neighbor with a strong trade relationship with Iran across the Gulf there, uh, across the Straits of Hormuz. They can't accept that, So, and neither can the U.S. The U.S. is on a mission, as is Saudi Arabia, and I think we all know it by now, which is to bankrupt Iran, to keep it uh, on its knees. And this is why they're suppressing the price of oil for so long now. It's so that Iran cannot get up and running. 
So my, my biggest fear is what do they have in store for Iran because they can't keep the price of oil down low forever. So are they going to hit Iran militarily? Uh, it's, they do not want it to build itself up in any way, shape, or form uh, financially uh, or militarily or anything infrastructure-wise. So this is part of a bigger – Yemen is just the latest expression of this kind of regional geopolitical war that we're seeing uh, between these opposing, seemingly opposing forces, but they're really not. I see it as a, as, it's a war of domination, if anything. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, I think another point that is often overlooked is that um, under Hadi, um, Saudi Arabia was going to impose um, the balkanization, the partitioning of Yemen into six states. Um, which was fundamentally going to isolate its biggest opposition, again, Ansrullah, in the center in a, in a state called Azal that would be completely devoid of resources um, and cut off for, from resources. So, you know, and, and then also, if we look at the fact that were Yemen to, to develop and flourish into a true um, confederacy or, um, or even a democracy, then how would that reflect upon the largest absolute monarchy in the world with the worst human rights violation record, right? You know, that's right on their doorstep. It's hardly going to look very good when but, they're right next door to that, executing 57 people a month. Sure, but... but um, and then, yeah, you know... But Yemen sorry. would be a secular... Yemen would be a secular nation-state, a multi-ethnic secular nation-state, much like Syria... Uh, much, much like uh, we can name a few other nation states that have fallen, uh, or, or who have attempts been made to collapse them. Now, you know, Iraq, Syria, mm -hmm. Libya, now Yemen. So, it, it, isn't it, this is what the theme is? Isn't this the pattern uh, that there are certain forces that do not want to see any secular, multi-ethnic, multifactional nation states in their orbit? Absolutely. And you've also got to consider the resources in Yemen. I mean, you have oil and gas resources in Al Jauf and in Marib. And we know that at the moment, those, those resources, if you like, are um, that their um, accessibility is governed by the Bab el Mandeb Straits and the, the Straits of Hormuz, which we know are under Iranian control. So the, it's no accident that ISIS have, for instance, um, primarily taken the southern province of Hadramut, which gives Saudi, if you like, a clear pipeline path from Al-Jaf and from Marib um, down, to, down to that area. So it gives them the, the potential to lay new pipelines and to take those resources down to the south of the country where they're, they're basically unchallenged in taking those resources from Yemen. In other words, they don't have to go via um, the, the Straits of Hormuz and they don't have to pass by the Bab el-Mandeb Straits. So, you know, there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of agendas at play here. Um, we know that for Israel, um, the big advantage is to have um, balkanization um, in order to reduce any threat from regional countries. Um, and for Saudi Arabia, it's resources, it's keeping Yemen as their breadbasket. And for the states even, are we looking at a launching pad for ISIS into the Horn of Africa in the future?
day. Uh, so, so we're going to wrap this. Uh, we're going to wrap this segment up. Um, Vanessa, I don't know if you have any any uh, last words. I know you're working on another piece, uh, a sequel to the previous article. If you go check out this article at 21st Century Wire, one year of bloodshed in Yemen. U.S. and U.K. are accomplices in a Saudi coalition war crimes by Vanessa Bealey at 21st Century Wire. Uh, there's a lot of information in there. I think it's really important people get that and share that on social media because uh, this isn't being covered. It's very undercovered, this story. But I think hopefully as the Syrian situation stabilizes a little bit, uh, people will take a more of a keen interest in what's going on in Yemen. That's our, that's our hope anyway. I, I'd have to be, yeah, I hope so. It needs it. So, uh, but uh, great work, uh, Vanessa, on this, and uh, hopefully we'll be checking in with you uh, very shortly on the show, perhaps next week. Uh, there's a lot going on. There, there is really, I, I just saw pictures, Vanessa, of a demonstration in Sanaa in Yemen, which I think was yesterday. Did you see those pictures? There's Absolutely. Hundreds, and this is hundreds the, of thousands yeah. of people in the street, basically uh, yeah. in support of. Well, you know, not not Saudi Arabia. <laughs> well, in in support of self determination yes. and Yemen's sovereignty, and I think you know this demonstration is for me. It's it's one of the most moving messages that we can possibly get from Yemen because it's basically saying the only legitimacy is that of the Yemeni people. And if I can just really quickly quote from Ibrahim Al Dalmi, director of Al Nasira. Yemen is wounded, severely wounded, but we will never succumb to the Saudi alliance brutality and oppression. We will resist, we will heal, and we will rebuild without the help of the international community who think they can profit from the devastation that they have sanctioned. And I think those words sum up what the majority of the Yemeni people have told me. And I think that's the message that we should take, that, that they will resist. And, and actually, I, I honestly believe, hand on heart, despite the bloodshed, despite the losses, they are going to, to win this fight. Yeah, Yemen has a very rich history. I, I, I encourage people to go do some research, uh, a very rich history, history of self-government and uh, just very sophisticated political a society there that is totally underestimated uh, by the West as usual. But if you can do me a favor, Vanessa, I'd love to if you can put a post together uh, up a, up on the website of of that demonstration. I mean, people need to see. Yeah. They they think that yeah. Sanaa is a ghost town, like no one's living there. No, that's not true, and they they have no idea. So I would love people to to see what's going on. That is a very incredible. Uh, public demonstration which just took place yesterday or today actually as yeah. well so and by the way they were being buzzed by saudi air force jets um who were flying around at, with imagine with all those hundreds of thousands of people on the street and saudis are flying over they you know could drop a bomb on them i don't know but luckily that didn't happen but um, incredible sight, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I think that's also indicative of the incredible um, resilience and spirit of resistance from these people. I mean, it was one of the most, it's, it was one of the, if not the most impoverished nation in the region, even before the blockade and the bombing of 365 days. And yet they can still pour out on the streets of Sanaa and, and demonstrate like this. Um, their solidarity and their continued resistance against this war of aggression. It's extraordinary, really extraordinary. Well, thank you for your work, uh, Vanessa, again. And uh, you can see her work up there at 21st Century Wire and at the Wall Will Fall, her website as well. Uh, keep an eye out for Vanessa's work in the coming days and weeks as well. 
We'll be checking back in with her next week, probably on the show. 